Hey, good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you. What a great worship set. Somebody say amen to that. All right. If you've got a Bible with you or a mobile device that you keep your Bible on, I want you to grab it and I want you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. When you get to Jeremiah, I want you to find chapter 18 and we're going to spend some time looking at the first 11 verses this morning. Now, while you're turning there, I'll tell you, if you are with us last week, that might seem a little odd to you because you know that last week we looked at this exact same passage of Scripture, Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. We looked at this passage with a message called, This is Not the End. Let me just try to explain that uh, for you while we're getting ready. And before I do that, let me just welcome the folks across the street video venue. Uh, always enjoy welcoming you into this part of the service. I know you've had a great service across the street. And also want to say welcome to all of you who are online with us this morning, wherever you might be. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. I don't know how familiar you may or may not be with this passage of Scripture of uh, God sending Jeremiah to the potter's house. But for a long time, it's been one of my favorite passages of Scripture because I love the way God so clearly uses the analogy and the illustration of a potter at the potter's house working at the potter's wheel to describe one of the most basic and immutable spiritual truths of life, and that is that God is always in control. Do you believe that this morning? God is always in control. We talked about that last week. Sometimes it's difficult. Because it's not clearly seen, sometimes uh, this reality is not always visible to us as we go through our daily lives, but we believe and understand uh, according to the Scriptures and by faith that God is always in control. And we talked about this last week from a very simple perspective, and that uh, revolved around this fundamental truth that while God doesn't design everything that happens in life. God, because He's in control, has the power to redesign anything that happens in life, and that's because He is the divine potter seated at the potter's will, which is to say He's always in control. Now, having said that, I can see how that might sound a little contradictory to some, because on the one hand, if God is always in control then why would God ever have to redesign anything? Why couldn't God, who is in control, make everything perfect and everything right from the very beginning? And that could create a question in some people's minds. Here is the simplest and best way I can explain that to you. While God is always in control, and there's another word we use for that. We call that the sovereignty of God. We talk about God being sovereign, which is to say that He's always in control. While God is sovereign, while He's always in control, He chooses to exercise that sovereignty. He chooses to exercise that control in a way that doesn't keep us sometimes from becoming marred in our lives, that doesn't sometimes keep our lives from turning out different than what we had hoped or what He had hoped. Now, sometimes that happens. Let's be honest. Let's just be honest together this morning. Sometimes that happens. Our lives become marred or our lives don't turn out the way we hoped or the way God hoped. Sometimes that happens because of bad choices that we make along the way, right? Everyone say, right. I'm sure every one of us here and everyone listening, wherever you might be, can, can <clears throat> think of moments in the past 
where we have regrets related to decisions or choices that we made, foolish choices, bad choices that got our lives off track, got our lives messed up. Sometimes it's, the, it's our own fault because of bad choices we made in the past. Sometimes our lives get marred and don't turn out the way we hope because of the choices that other people make that affect us. may not be our fault, but their choices affected us. And honestly, sometimes our lives get marred and don't turn out the way we had hoped because that's just the reality of living in a sinful, fallen world where all of us at some point are victimized by the reality of that sin. We're not at fault, but we become victims to the reality of sin being in the world and sin infecting every single part of the world. But, and here's what we need to know, and here's what we need to hang on to, even when our lives become marred, even when our lives don't turn out the way we hoped or the way God hoped, God has the ability, if we remain pliable, like pliable clay in His hands, to go back to the illustration of the potter at the wheel, if we turn to God, we remain like pliable clay in His hands. He has the ability to redesign our lives, not just into something different, but into something better. That speaks to His sovereignty and His control, and that can happen in a lot of different ways. Let me just ask you this question. Can you think of a moment in your life where circumstances in your life, the experience of your life went so bad that everything about it just spelled out disaster as you looked at it in the moment? I'm in disaster in capital letters. Your life was a disaster in the moment. And yet, because you remained faithful, because you turned to God, you didn't turn away from God, you turned to God, and you trusted Him, you surrendered to Him, He was able to take that and turn it into something that was incredible, something well beyond anything that you ever imagined. That's what happens when we remain like pliable clay in the potter's hands. He's able to turn things around. I'm sure we've had those kinds of experiences, all of us. And that's really what we talked about last week. Well, moving forward, I want to take another look at this text, and I want to talk about it from a little bit of a different perspective this morning in a message that I'm calling, It's Never Too Late. So, let's not waste any more time. If you've got your Bibles open to Jeremiah 18, wherever you are, stand with me in reverence and respect for God's Word as I read our text, Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. As you know, this is what we do every week. We make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service. You follow along, Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. Okay, there it is. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word, the hearing of His Word. You can be seated this morning. Let's talk about this passage from the perspective of 
context for a few minutes. Jeremiah was a prophet in the 6th century who spoke to God's people on behalf of God somewhere around 600 years before the birth of Christ. So to try to put it in a historical perspective, that's the time period for his life. And Jeremiah was called to be a prophet to God's people, the Israelites, at one of the most difficult periods of time in their entire history, one of the most difficult periods of time in their nation. And to understand that, you need to know a little bit about biblical history, Old Testament history, or maybe for you, you just need to be reminded a little bit about Old Testament history. You know, the nation of Israel is a very small nation. It was then and it is now. Roughly, honestly, only about the size of the state of New Jersey with powerful enemies to the north, powerful enemies to the south. But in spite of that, because they were God's people, God's special people, God's called people, the nation of Israel flourished. And why wouldn't they? I mean, if God comes along and calls you and says, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God, wouldn't you expect good things to happen? Everyone say yes. And good things happened. They went from a, a, a kind of a, a federation of, uh, of, of tribes uh, to a monarchy, first of all, under the re- uh, rule of King Saul, who was their first king, and then second, under the rule of King David, who was their second king. And then when King Solomon came along as the third king, they really began to be successful, and they really began to expand uh, as a country and as a nation. But after Solomon's reign as king came to an end, things really began to fall apart for God's people the Israelites. And as a result of internal struggles, as a result of political violence and political division, the nation of Israel split in two, into two kingdoms. Now there's the northern kingdom of Israel and there's the southern kingdom of Judah. And both of them lived in rebellion to God. Even though God said, you're going to be my people, I'm going to be your God, you do what I say and I'm going to bless you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to… All these things, which you would think would make them do exactly what God said… They did just the opposite. And so God gave them repeated warnings, warning after warning after warning that they needed to repent, that they needed to turn around, they needed to begin to obey Him. But in the end, to make a long story short, they refused to heed the warnings, and so God punished them, which is exactly what God said He was going to do. First of all, He punished the northern kingdom of Israel. He used the powerful nation of Assyria, the Assyrians, to conquer and completely destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And I mean it was a complete destruction. The cities of Israel were destroyed and all, everyone say all, all of the people were carried off into exile. And when I say they were carried off into exile, I'm telling you they were carried off into different parts of the then known world never to be heard from again. It was complete and it was devastating. Now, sometime later, and now this is in the time of Jeremiah the prophet. Remember, we're reading from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Uh, God punished the southern kingdom of Judah as well. And just like he used the Assyrians to punish the northern kingdom of Israel, God used this time the Babylonians, the nation of Babylon, to punish the southern kingdom of Judah. And they were almost as devastating as the Assyrians were. They ransacked Judah, especially the city of Jerusalem, tore down the walls, burnt the gates, they devastated the city, and they carried large portions, not everyone, but they carried large portions of the people of Judah off into Babylonian exile. They left some exile, they left a remnant of people in Judah, but they carried large large portions off of the people of Judah into Babylonian exile. And about the time this was getting ready to happen, 
About the time when the people of Judah were living in fear because of the growing threat of the Babylonians, and while they were wondering if God was going to protect them, Jeremiah received his call to be a prophet. And that's the context of Jeremiah chapter 18. Remember, Jeremiah 18 begins like this. This is basically a, a good picture of the call that Jeremiah received to be a prophet. Jeremiah 18 says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. See, if you were here last week, I told you that the specific context for this passage is God speaking to Judah related to the fact that their disobedience and rebellion had caused them to be marred in his hands, had caused them not to turn out the way that God had hoped. That's why, excuse me, that's why Jeremiah 18 and verse 4 says, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. When Jeremiah went down to the potter's house, he saw the potter at the wheel, and he made this observation. The pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. The pot he's talking about is the nation of Judah. Now, having said all of that, having set that context, what I want to do is take a few minutes and I want to give you some more important spiritual truths from Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, and these truths all fall under this one single heading, it's never too late. I think this is an important message for all of us. I think it's going to be important for us to hear. If you're taking notes, write down next to number one, this first thing. The first thing is this, it's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to do the right thing. Look back with me, Jeremiah chapter 18, okay? So verse 1, the Word of God comes to Jeremiah. He says, go down to the potter's house in verse 2. And this is what we see beginning in verse 3, just to remind ourselves. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. And here's what happened. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So what did the potter do? Look at the last part of verse 4. It says, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you. He's talking to Judah now. He says, so are you in my hands. That's what he's telling them in verse 6. Now look at verse 7. He says, if at any time... I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed. And if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Stop right there. Now, I'm sure you can see in verses 7 and 8 a very simple application, a very simple message related specifically to the nation of Judah. But I hope you'll also see that there's an application there for all of us, an application for all of us. See, the southern kingdom of Judah, just like the northern kingdom of Israel before her, was headed to judgment. But because God is a gracious God, He continued to offer them instruction, and He continued to offer them the opportunity to do the right thing so that that destruction would not happen, because that's what God does. How many of you know this is true? Because He's a gracious God, that's what God does. He continues to give us chance after chance after chance. It won't be forever. But this is what he does because he's a gracious God. He gives us an opportunity to do the right thing. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. You know, there are people in the world today, and when I say people, I'm talking about pastors, preachers, Christians, who will talk about God's impending judgment. 
For example, they'll talk about God's impending judgment on our country, God's impending judgment on America. And they talk about that because I think we would all agree that as a country, we've wandered a long way from our spiritual roots, right? Everyone say right. And so, they'll talk about God's impending judgment on America, but they'll talk about it as if it's a done deal. But it's not. And it's not just America. The same people will be quick to condemn other people, or they might even be quick to condemn themselves, and they talk about God's impending judgment on someone else, or God's impending judgment on them because of some mistake that they have made, and they talk about it as if it's a done deal, but it's not. It's not. God's judgment is not a done deal. As I stand here talking to you this morning, it's not a done deal on anyone because no matter how many mistakes someone has made, no matter how big a sinner someone might be, God's judgment is not a done deal, at least not yet. It's not too late for you or me or anyone. You know how I know that's true? You know how you know it, can know it's true? Take your two fingers and put them on your wrist just like that. Or maybe stick them right up here under your neck. You feel a pulse? As long as your heart is beating in your chest, it's not too late. It's not too late to do the right thing. Why? Because God is a gracious God, and He gives the opportunity to all of us to turn our lives around. You know, one of the greatest examples of this is another story found in the Old Testament, and honestly, it's a story that most people are familiar with. Even people who aren't believers are familiar, at least on some level, with this story. I'm talking about the Old Testament story of Jonah. I mean, to be more specific in the context of what we're talking about, it's really not so much about Jonah as it is the Old Testament story of the people of Nineveh. You remember the story? Jonah was a prophet. God tapped him on the shoulder one day. He said, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, and I want you to preach to those people. And here's what I want you to say to them, basically. I want you to say, you got 40 days, 40 days, and then my judgment is coming. The clock has started. The countdown has begun. You've got 40 days. That was what God wanted Jonah to do. Now, you know, in the first part of the story, Jonah got a little distracted, right? And instead of doing what God told him to do, he, he did just the opposite, and God had to get his attention, and he did it in a spectacular way, didn't he? But when you get to the end of Jonah chapter 2, and you find that Jonah has been, I think my NIV Bible says it like this, vomited up on the land by a big fish... God gives him the call a second time, and Jonah eventually makes his way to the city of Nineveh, and he does exactly what God said. He said, you got 40 days, and then there's going to be judgment, 40 days before God's judgment comes to this city. And when that happened, the unthinkable, the unexpected happened, and the people of Nineveh repented. And when the people of Nineveh repented, God relented, and the judgment didn't come. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go down to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. What was the message? You go back to Jonah chapter 1 and verse 2 and you find the message. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. We don't have time to go into detail about how great the wickedness was in the city of Nineveh, but it was incredible. I can tell you this morning, it included all kinds of violence, all kinds of terror, all kinds of torture, all kinds of murder, all kinds of paganism, and more. History tells us, not the Bible now, just history itself tells us that the Ninevites were dangerous people and they were profane people. No doubt one of the biggest reasons why Jonah, instead of heading to Nineveh when God told him to, got on a ship and went the other way to a place called Tarshish was because he was just 
afraid. He was frightened about the prospect of going to a place where the people were so dangerous. That's why. And yet when he ultimately got to Nineveh and he shared God's message, the story tells us that the entire city repented. In fact, in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 5, it says that the people responded with repentance from the greatest to the least. Everyone repented. He said, 40 days. You got 40 days and then God's judgment's going to come. And yet when they responded, when they did the right thing, God relented and God spared them. Listen to me, it's never too late to do the right thing. Never too late. When it comes to God, it's never too late to do the right thing. Let me ask you a question. This might sound like a really foolish question this morning, but just humor me. Don't answer out loud, but just think about it. What would you say would be the greatest sin that anybody could ever commit? The greatest sin that anybody could ever commit. Now, I know, obviously, I know that there's no way that we can answer that question conclusively this morning, and we could probably come up with a lot of really strong answers, but just for the sake of moving on and for the sake of argument, let me suggest that the greatest sin that anybody could ever commit would be the absolute and complete denial of Jesus. You ever known anybody who did that? Well, the Bible gives us a story of somebody who did that. It was the Apostle Peter, and he did it on the night that Jesus was betrayed and the night that Jesus was arrested. In fact, Jesus had predicted that denial before it even happened. And when Jesus predicted that denial, Peter responded by saying, never, never. In fact, Matthew's account of this is in Matthew chapter 26, and Matthew 26, 34, or excuse me, 35 says, Peter declared, this is after Jesus said this would happen, Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Those were Peter's words. He spoke those in front of Jesus. He spoke those in front of the rest of the disciples. And yet, what did he do? He didn't just deny and disown Jesus once, but he did it three times, just like Jesus said. And it's clear that when it happened, Peter understood completely the significance, the great significance of his failure and his sin In fact, a little bit later in Matthew chapter 26, this time in verse 75, this is right after the rooster crowed. If you remember the role the rooster played in the story, verse 75 says, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly, bitterly. Now, listen. I've always believed, and I believe this strongly today, even though it's not specifically stated in the text, that those were tears of repentance on Peter's part. Because when that rooster crowed and it all came back to him, he realized in that moment how deeply he had failed the depth of his sin. Can you imagine how awful that moment was for Peter? Can we even imagine how badly he felt? Can we even imagine how badly he must have beat himself up for the next few days until Jesus rose from the dead? And what happened when Jesus rose from the dead? What happened after the resurrection? Jesus gave Peter the opportunity not just to be forgiven, but to be completely restored. In fact, if you were to base your perspective solely on the gospel of Mark and Mark's account of the resurrection, you would have to come to the conclusion that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose from the dead with Peter on his mind. Why do I say that? Well, look at this verse from Mark chapter 16 and verse 7. I think we have it to put up on the screen. 
And by the way, here's an interesting thing about the gospel of Mark. You know, Mark wasn't one of the original 12 disciples. He wasn't with Jesus. He didn't follow Jesus. He didn't get all this information directly from first contact with Jesus. But history tells us that he had forged at a point in his life, he forged a very deep and strong relationship with Peter himself. And most Bible scholars believe that the gospel of Mark is actually the compilation of stories that Peter passed on to Mark, which makes this even more significant. Because in Mark 16, 7, this is the, this is, these are the words of an angel to people who'd come to the tomb to try to, uh, to be there at the tomb where Jesus was. It said, but go tell his disciples when they found that it was empty, but go tell his disciples, note this, and Peter, he, that's Jesus, is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. What's the message here? It's never too late to do the right thing. When it comes to God, listen, I don't care who you are, where you've been or what you've done, it's never too late to do the right thing. I know this is not a current story, but I'm sure most of us here would recognize the name Jeffrey Dahmer, one of the most gruesome serial killers in our country's history, someone who kidnapped, murdered, dismembered cannibalized his victims, and not just that, even more other things that are so viable that you don't even, or excuse me, so vile that you don't even want to speak about them. When he was captured and tried and convicted, he was sentenced to 15 consecutive life terms in a Wisconsin prison, and ultimately he was murdered in that Wisconsin prison, brutally murdered himself in November of 1994. In April of that same year, in April of 1994, a few months before he was murdered, a man named Kurt Booth, who was a member of the Crescent City Church of Christ in Crescent, Oklahoma, was watching the news one evening, and he caught a glimpse of Jeffrey Dahmer on television, and he heard him say these words, I wish I could find a little peace. And when he spoke about it later, this Oklahoma churchman said that he sensed a deep level of hurt in Dahmer's voice and his eyes. And so he thought to himself, I know somebody who could give you that peace. His name is Jesus. And so he followed that up by sending Jeffrey Dahmer a Bible correspondence course that taught the steps of salvation. And after Dahmer received it, he mailed back the answers and he thanked Booth for the course. And then he wrote these words, but I still have one problem. This prison does not have a baptismal tank. And Mr. Burkham, the prison chaplain, is not sure if he can find someone to bring a tank in and baptize me. He said, I've taken all the other steps. And so, Kurt Booth started reaching out to churches and ministers in Wisconsin, trying to find someone who would go to visit this man in prison, this serial killer, this disgusting, despicable man in prison to follow up on him. And not surprisingly, the first people he contacted said, no, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. But then he found a man named Roy Ratcliffe, who was the minister of the Madison Church of Christ in Madison, Wisconsin, just a little bitty church, less than 100 people. And he said, I'll do it. And so he went to the prison to visit Jeffrey Dahmer, and then he set up weekly Bible lessons with him, and ultimately they went through the Bible lessons, and he baptized him into Christ on May the 10th, 1994. Ratcliffe later shared that Dahmer told him he had been fearful of the minister's initial visit because he was afraid the minister would say, no, you're too evil, you're too sinful, I can't baptize someone like you. 
After his baptism, Roy Ratcliffe continued to go to the prison every week and meet with Dahmer to study the Bible and eventually wrote a book about the experience that was called Dark Journey, Deep Grace. In the book, he talks about meeting Dahmer, about answering his questions, studying the Bible, and ultimately leading him to a profession of faith in Christ and baptism into Christ. Now, I want you to listen to me really, really close. I can't stand here this morning and tell you that I know with absolute certainty that Jeffrey Dahmer's conversion was real. I can't. I wasn't there. I don't worry about it because I know that God knows. There were lots of negative reactions to this story when it got out in the media. There were lots of negative reactions to Ratcliffe's book when it was published. The two most common were, anyone who would do what Jeffrey Dahmer has done is an absolute psychopath, and psychopaths are liars who can make you believe anything. And you know what? Maybe that's true. Maybe there's some validity to that. I don't know. Do you know? Anybody here this morning want to say that they know for sure, for certain? I don't know. The other common response, and this was kind of surprising, but a lot of people responded by making this kind of statement. They said, if Jeffrey Dahmer is in heaven, then I don't think I want to go there. I'm going to say it again. There's no way that I can stand here this morning and tell you with absolute certainty, with absolute conviction that Jeffrey Dahmer's conversion was real because I don't know. But there's a greater question than that for us this morning. The greater question is not do we believe that his conversion was real. The greater question is do we believe it's possible for someone like Jeffrey Dahmer to be converted? Do we believe it's possible? Can someone as gruesome, as despicable as... Jeffrey Dahmer, can someone like that experience a genuine conversion experience? Can their life be turned around? Is it possible for anyone who's spent years living in the darkest part of this world? I'll tell you this morning what I believe. I believe it's possible for anyone to experience a genuine conversion if there is heartfelt repentance involved heartfelt repentance. That's the key. Look back at Jeremiah chapter 18 verses 7 and 8. This is that part of the story or the part of the text where God basically says it's never too late to do the right thing because He says in verses 7 and 8, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. That's exactly what happened to the people of Nineveh. God was going to destroy them in 40 days, and when they repented, He relented, and the judgment never came. In verse 8, God says, and if the na that nation I warned repents, repents. That's not a word we talk a lot about today, the word repent. In the Hebrew, which the Old Testament was originally written in and translated later into English, in the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word naham. And this is an overly simple translation, but it basically means grief and regret. We're more familiar with repent or repentance, different forms of the word, in the New Testament that was originally written in Greek. In the New Testament, it's the Greek word metanoeo, and it literally means to change one's mind. And the idea is to change one's mind with regard to sin. The obvious result of a change of mind will be a change of behavior. But I'll say it again. We don't talk about repentance today. 
When's the last time you heard a sermon on repentance? I can't think of the last time I preached a sermon on repentance, so shame on me. And the reason why is we don't want to offend anyone. I saw something recently that really resonated with me. It was a quote. It said, there was a time when people went to church, heard the truth, and wept over their sins. Today, people go to church, hear a motivational speech, and ignore their sins. There's a lot of truth to that statement. But there's a great need for repentance in all of our lives because when we are honest about our sin and when we repent, the grace of God is released in our lives. And when the grace of God is released in our lives, His love and His acceptance and His forgiveness create security in our hearts. But because this is something we never talk about, because repentance is something that we're afraid to talk about, repentance has become a stumbling block to people receiving this genuine assurance of salvation. We tell people, believe in Jesus or have faith in Jesus. And many people are willing to do that, at least on some intellectual or some emotional level. But when we fail to talk about repentance, we fail to acknowledge the fundamental problem that stands between us and God, and that's the problem of sin, sin that Jesus died on the cross for. And as a result, and I'm sorry if this makes me sound like I'm judgmental and harsh, but as a result, I believe there are a lot of people today who are making false professions of faith. You can't make a a sincere profession of faith if you don't acknowledge the reality of sin. It's just not possible. And so, repentance is critical for all of us. It's critical because in repentance, there's the confession of sin. It's critical because in confession, there's contrition or sorrow for sin. And in repentance, there is a commitment to a new way of life where you're willing to turn away from sin and turn to God. And so we look back in Jeremiah chapter 18, and Jeremiah the prophet said that repentance would be the key for Judah if they wanted to be saved, if they wanted God to relent with this coming punishment and judgment. But it wasn't just Judah. Repentance is the key for all of us. It's the key for all men everywhere when it comes to the truth that with God, it's never too late. There has to be repentance. Okay, here's the deal. I've obviously spent way too much time talking about point number one, (laughs) a lot longer than I originally planned, but I don't want you to get nervous because I'm going to get you out on time very quickly. I want you to write down next to number two, this second truth. Not only number one, is it never too late to do the right thing, but number two, it's never too late to do the wrong thing. It's never too late to do the wrong thing. Look back with me at verses nine and 10. Remember, we got to do this quickly. After Jeremiah or God lays out this scenario where if repentance comes, he will relent with his judgment and punishment, he goes on to say this in verses 9 and 10. He says, and if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. And so basically, after he tells Jeremiah that it's never too late to do the right thing, he says the opposite is true as well. It's never too late to do the wrong thing. Now, this is an important truth because it reminds us that no matter how good a job we've done in the past with guarding our spiritual lives, what's done in the past doesn't matter. We never have the luxury. None of us ever has the luxury of letting our spiritual guard down. Everyone say amen to that. No matter how good you've been in the past, that doesn't ensure your future. 
We all have to keep our spiritual guard up all the time. Reminds me of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12 when Paul said, in fact, let's just read them off the screen together. Let me hear your voices. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Every one of us should highlight that verse in our Bibles and we should commit it to memory. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I think years ago, I told you the story. When I was a pastor in Oklahoma, there was a pastor in another local church there, not the not a Christ, an independent Christian church like Mount Pleasant or the one I served there. But he was a young guy, and he was just one of the most dynamic uh, pastors that I have ever met. He was a great preacher, just great, gifted preacher, powerful preacher, just could hold the audience of the room from the moment he began to talk. He was uh, leading a growing church. People were flocking to his church because of his ministry skills. He became an author. He was a sought-after speaker. There were just, I mean, at a very young age, everything was falling into place for him. Things were just incredible. It just seemed like that there was no limit to the way God would use this guy. And then it all came crashing down around him. Because in the busyness of trying to keep up with his ministry and his schedule, he got too close to his administrative assistant. They had an emotional affair, which turned into a physical affair. It was discovered and found out, and he lost everything. Everything. Now, when that happened, I can remember in our community there, and I can remember other pastors talking about it, and there was some jealousy involved, I'm sure, behind some of the words, but I can remember some people saying, well, it just proves the point. He just must have been a fake from the very beginning. He just must have been a phony from the beginning. And I'm going to tell you today, that's completely false. I knew the guy. He was as genuine as the day is long, but here's the deal. He let his guard down. And you and I never have the luxury of letting our guard down. No matter how good job we've done in the past, we never have that luxury. And you know why? Because there's not one of us here, not you, not me, not one of us here, not one person across the street, not one person listening online who is completely above reproach when it comes to making stupid mistakes and poor choices in our lives. Not one of us. We all have the ability to do that. And so you simply can never let your guard down because it's never too late to do the wrong thing, no matter how much time you've spent doing the right thing. Right down next to number three, this last thing. It's never too late to do the responsible thing. That's the last point. And Brian, you can come because I'm committed to ending on time. And when I say doing the responsible thing, I mean taking ownership of your life where you've been, where you are, where you're headed. That's why God said these final words in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 11. Look back at the text. In Jeremiah 18, 11, it says, Now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways. Notice the next phrase, each one of you, and reform your ways and actions. You know, the book of Jeremiah is basically a call to the nation of Judah to repent. They had fallen into sinful, idolatrous behavior. They were going in the wrong direction. They were moving towards certain judgment and certain punishment and certain destruction. And the tendency when something like that happens is to say, you know what? Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Somebody should do something about it. But who's that somebody? It's you and it's me. You know, I told you about preachers who say, you know, that there's an impending, God's impending, talk about God's impending judgment on America, and so America should do this or America should do that, like America's one unified decision-making 
organism, and it's not. It's made up of all of us. And we all have to take responsibility for our own lives and our own actions. That's where it begins. Because we can't make somebody else do something. I can't make you. I can't force you to do anything, but I can control what I do. And that's the point here. It's never too late to do the responsible thing, to take ownership of your life. That's where it begins. And that's what God is telling the prophet Jeremiah, and that's what he's communicating to the nation of Israel. That's why he said, so turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. He's not speaking to the group as a whole. He's speaking to each individual. He's saying, you take responsibility for your life, for what you do. That's what we need to do. See, Jeremiah is not just saying, in a sense, as we close, he's not just saying that you're like clay in the potter's hands, that we're like clay in the potter's hands. He's also saying, in a sense, as you look at it from this perspective, that the future is like clay in each of our hands because we have a big decision, or excuse me, we have a big say in the direction of our lives. Our futures are not written in stone. Our futures are written in clay, and how pliable that clay is, how pliable we allow our lives to be in God the potter's hands You and I are never going to get to a point in our lives where what we do doesn't matter. Now, we can hear those words as a threat, or we can hear those words as an invitation, an invitation to turn our lives around and experience the grace of God, an invitation to understand that every day is important, every day matters, every day you can move toward God or away from God. Every day you can move toward undoing the mistakes of the past and making sure that you won't repeat the mistakes of the past or you can move toward more mistakes. Every day you can see more of the glory of God and let the glory of God be lived out in your life or you can move further and further away from Him. It's your choice. But here's the deal. As long as your heart's beating in your chest... I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. It's never too late. In fact, just say that with me. It's never too late. Let's pray.